the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. to change your attitude, change your life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Have you tried to make changes in your life only to end up doing the same old thing over and over again? Do you look at successful people and wonder what they know that you don't? According to today's guest, Charles Duhigg, the key to making change and achieving what we want is to understand how habits work. He's here to discuss scientific discoveries that explain why habits exist and how they can be changed. Charles is the author of the book, The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. Welcome, Charles. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Charles, your book, the information in it, I found to be extremely fascinating. Eugene's story was amazing. And to just see the power of the mind and what it's capable of, I just thought that that was so fascinating. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, the story that you mentioned about Eugene Polly is a really interesting one. Mr. Polly was a, a man who... Um, about midway through life, it contracted viral encephalitis, which is a, the same disease that causes cold sores. But in very rare cases, when it enters your spine, it can get up into your brain and cause massive brain damage. It essentially eats away at portions of the brain. And in his case, it ate away at a part of, part of his brain that affected his short-term memory. He was a complete amnesiac. He couldn't remember anything for more than, say, about 15 or 16 seconds. And yet what was really interesting is that even though Mr. Polly could not remember anything, he couldn't remember who his grandchildren were, if you asked him where the, the, um, the kitchen was in his house, he couldn't tell you which door to go through to get there. Even though he had this disability, he was able to develop new habits. If he was hungry, he could stand up and walk to the kitchen and get down some nuts and feed himself, but he was not able to remember that. And, and that gave us this huge insight into how habits work not only within our neurology, but within our lives. So, Charles, what is a habit? How is it formed? And is our life just a mass of habits? So there was a woman named Dr. Wendy Wood who at Duke University did an experiment where she followed thousands of people around to try and figure out how much of our daily activities are in fact habits. And what she found was that about 40 to 45 percent of the decisions that we make every day aren't really decisions, they're habits. And in the last decade, what we've learned is how a habit works, particularly its neurological structure. There's three components to a habit. There's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start, and then a routine, which is the behavior itself, and then finally a reward. And the reward is how our brain, in particular part of our brain known as the basal ganglia, learns to remember that pattern for the future. And this is a pretty interesting insight because for years when people thought about changing habits, they always focused on, on the behavior, on the, the routine. But what we've learned is that it's really the, the cue and the reward that shape how habits unfold. If you want to change a habit or create a new habit, you have to focus on these triggers and these rewards, and the automatic behavior kind of follows on its heels. So you have to do something different. Exactly, exactly. Now, Charles, what happens in the brain when a habit is formed? There's essentially a neural connection that is formed between this cue and this reward within accompanying behavior. The way that our neurology works is that when particular cues and rewards and behaviors are linked, a neural synapse, essentially a pathway in our brain, will begin to form associating those particular behaviors. And 
as the reward reinforces that behavior, it releases neurotransmitters that cause the, essentially the walls of that pathway to get thicker and thicker and thicker. As a result, it's easier for an electrical charge to move down that particular pathway. That's why something starts to feel sort of automatic at some point is because it's become much easier for the impulse associated with that behavior to occur these cues and these rewards, that's why they're important is because they seem to shape how these neural pathways associated with particular behaviors develop. This is something that we can actually see on a scan. What we can see is we can see different changes in blood flow through the brain. So when we're using functional, what are known as fMRIs or functional MRIs, what we can see is changes in how essentially areas of the brain receive more or less blood as a behavior changes. And as people change their sort of habits, their daily life, we know that there's a change in cognition because we see different areas of the brain become active over time. Charles, you've been talking about the cue and reward. And and is this when someone wants to lose weight or, or quit smoking? And say, for example, you sit down at night on the couch and you watch TV and immediately you want to grab the potato chips because it's a habit. Or maybe you can go all day without smoking when you're at work. But the minute you get in the car, you roll down the window and light up a cigarette. Is that what you're talking about? And are those the types of things that we need to change the cue in order to change that habit? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I think that a lot of people, particularly when it comes to food habits, have these location-based cues. But the key is not to change the cue. It's, it's more to recognize the cue and change the behavior. Within neurology, there's this, um, this theory called the golden rule of habit change, which says that if you want to change an automatic behavior, what you need to do is you need to recognize the cue, the trigger that causes it, and recognize the reward. And instead of trying to change the cue and reward, which is very, very challenging, that you should instead try and find a new behavior that seems triggered by that old cue and to deliver a reward that's similar to that old reward. So cigarettes is a great example. One of the most effective um, smoking cessation therapies available is to figure out when people smoke. So for instance, most people will smoke with their morning coffee or they'll smoke in the car, as you pointed out. And then try and come up with something that replicates the reward that they're getting from that activity. For most people, nicotine provides this burst of energy. It's kind of an energizer that people come to rely on. And so giving them something that reproduces that same reward, say a double espresso or a nicotine replacement that has some type of caffeinating um, or energizing effect, will in fact help that person stop smoking. In your book, you shared a story about a woman who wanted to take a trip. She had just gotten divorced and she wanted to take a trip. And she believed that she needed to quit smoking in order to make this trip possible. And that one change, quitting smoking, set off a chain of reactions of different changes. How does that happen? I mean, is that something that we can emulate in our lives? Well, yeah, we see this happen quite a bit. So, so one of the things that researchers have, have discovered is that some habits seem to be more important than others. They seem to have this greater impact on our lives. They refer to those as keystone habits because once they start to shift, they seem for some reason to set off a chain reaction that changes other patterns, other habits more effortlessly. And so for the woman that you mentioned, Lisa Allen, you know, she had just gotten, her husband had just told her he wanted to leave her. She was overweight. She was a chronic smoker. She had had trouble holding holding down jobs, and so she decided to go to Egypt. And while she was in Egypt, and all of her cues were kind of, you know, up for grabs, she went out to the pyramids, and when she was on her way to the pyramids, she saw the, the, the desert that surrounds them on, on three sides, and she decided that she was going to come back within the year and cross the desert, and that in order to do that, in order to survive that experience, she needed to give up smoking. Now, this actually doesn't make any sense because the only way to cross the Egyptian desert is in a car, and you have to put in, you know, water and food and a whole bunch of other stuff. You can easily put in cartons of smokes as well. Mm -hmm. But she became convinced that giving up smoking was the key to achieving this goal. And so she started giving, she started focusing on giving up smoking. And once she quit smoking, it did seem to start this chain reaction. For Lisa Allen, the woman in the, the story, smoking was a keystone habit that once it began began to shift, it shifted a number of other things. She started eating more healthily and started exercising more. She ended up running a marathon two years later. Her relationships and sort of the habits she brought to relationships got much much better, much more positive. And when people look at her life and lives like hers, what they recognize is that for some reason, one habit becomes very, very key to our sense of self 
image, right? For Lisa, it was smoking. Mm -hmm. Giving up smoking for her seemed to represent more than just giving up smoking. And once she was able to give up smoking, all these other changes in her life sort of fell into place. Studies show that this actually happens all the time. For a lot of people, exercise is a keystone habit. And studies indicate that for many people, when they start exercising, they start eating more healthfully without really thinking about it, which makes sense, right? You you, you feel good about your body, and so you, your eating habits change. What's interesting, though, is that also on average, people who start an exercise habit, they start using their credit cards less. They very often start doing um, chores, like doing their dishes earlier in the day by about 23 minutes. And the importance there is that Obviously, no one starts exercising and thinks about exercising when they're in the checkout line and pulling out their credit card. And yet, for some reason, for many people, starting to exercise changes their self-image enough that they're able to, that it sort of filters down to their other automatic behaviors. Charles, with this type of power within our reach, why do you think we fall short when we try to make change? What are we missing? Well, usually when people are trying to make changes, they're not paying attention to the cues and rewards, right? They're really not diagnosing the behavior. So it's very common, for instance, that someone says, I want to lose weight. I'm going to start eating more healthfully. That's almost guaranteed to fail if that's your whole plan, is I'm going to start eating more healthfully. What you really need to do, according to studies, is you need to recognize, okay, when during the day do I end up eating unhealthy foods? You know, let's say it happens that you, um, your, your intentions are good in the morning, and then when you get into the cafeteria, you end up having a slice of pizza, and then when you're, when you're feeling sluggish in the afternoon, you go get a candy bar. Okay, so now you know your cues. Your cues are lunchtime and this sense of sluggishness in the afternoon. And then you figure out what the rewards are. Why are you eating that pizza? Perhaps it's because you've had a long day and you feel, you know, that you need something to kind of reward yourself. You want to feel good, in which case you need to ask, okay, what else can make me feel good? Perhaps it's a matter of, you know, taking 20 minutes and just sort of surfing the web or calling a friend. Maybe it's eating something that has a taste novelty, but it doesn't have to be pizza or a candy bar. It can be an apple or some fruit. Once you identify the cues and rewards, then you can need to come up with a plan to say, okay, look, instead of saying, I'm going to eat more healthily today to say, at lunchtime, I'm going to walk in and I'm going to get a salad and I'm going to put on top of it strawberries because I know that strawberries are particularly sweet and I really like them. And then in the afternoon when I'm feeling sluggish, at 3.30, I'm going to set the alarm on my watch and then I'm going to get up and I'm going to take a walk around the block for 20 minutes and sort of let myself feel really re-energized. That's what's important is to have these specific plans. Within psychology, these are known as implementation intentions. And they're shown to be much more effective at creating change. When people fail to change, it's usually because they don't have a specific plan and they haven't diagnosed how their behavior is actually going to work. But once you begin to diagnose that, according to studies, your odds of succeeding are much, much higher. Charles, understanding the cues and the routine and reward, how can we take that loop and apply it to achieving professional success? Well, one of the things that we know is that organizations develop habits the same way that individuals do, right? I'm sure that for everyone who's listening, that in their workplace, there's, a, there's organizational habits, sort of institutional habits that they hardly even think about. How you do expenses, how people communicate with each other, how bosses and subordinates share information. All of those behaviors, according to, to researchers who have looked into this, follow these same sort of so the same basic principle of how habits unfold, right? There's usually some type of trigger or cue for an institutional habit and a reward that's being given to people as a result. And so beginning to diagnose those helps people understand how to succeed. Um, there's been a number of studies that have looked at, at for instance, take the fashion industry. The, the fashion industry is one of these really interesting industries where almost everyone who's in it is creative, or at least who runs a fashion label. It's very hard to become a fashion designer without being creative in the first place. But there's this fundamental question, why do some fashion houses succeed and others fail? And what studies indicate is that the houses that succeed are the ones that get institutional or organizational habits right. That essentially, if you don't have a habit in place and automatic routines for dealing with things like sourcing materials or pricing garments or communicating across distributed workforces, people who might be all over the world, if you don't habitualize that, you spend so much time thinking about it and just dealing with logistics that you don't actually have time to be creative. The main differentiator between successful and unsuccessful fashion houses 
is not creative metrics. It's whether the company itself or the fashion designer can habitualize these business practices. And so that's really important for people's own workplace and their own professions and careers. Just ask yourself, which part of your day can you make into a habit? Which part of your day can you stop thinking about so that it happens automatically and gives you more time to think about the things that are important, be that creativity or you know, being able to have enough time to focus on a project, et cetera. And that would lead to improved efficiency. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a huge part of efficiency that seems to be driven by your ability to routinize certain behaviors so you don't have to think about them. Charles, what about what the corporations know? How are they manipulating us with this information? Well, one of the things that um, that we spent a lot of time writing about, about how Target was looking at shoppers' habits in order to understand their lives. Target, the store, is so good at this that, in fact, they could look at some shoppers' habits and predict whether they were pregnant or not based on how what they were buying changed. Oftentimes, women who are pregnant, at about the end of their first trimester, they'll stop buying scented lotion and start buying unscented lotion. Very often, a a few weeks later or earlier, they'll start buying particular vitamins. And this is really important because companies use this information to figure out how to market to us, right? What's interesting is that someone who might not have told Target they were pregnant, who might not have told some of their family members that they're pregnant, will suddenly start getting all these coupons in the mail from Target for baby diapers or, or cribs or wipes. For some people, this is kind of scary. They don't like the idea of stores spying into their lives. The important takeaway, I think, from this is that to be aware of this, the companies only have the power to sort of spy on us if we allow them to, if we're not aware of what's going on. And so the more aware you are of, of the coupons you get via email or via the postal mail, the more you can be aware of what the companies are seeing within our lives and what assumptions they're making about who we are. How do leaders and athletes use the information that we've been talking about today for their success? Athletes in particular think a lot about about habitualizing their practice routines because so much of what they do is dependent upon being comfortable in any situation, particularly a competitive situation. So in the book, we spend a lot of time talking about the story of Michael Phelps, the, the Olympian who's, who's won more gold medals than anyone else. He's a swimmer, as I'm sure all of your listeners know. Michael Phelps started swimming when he was seven years old. And what was interesting is that from the start, he had a physical build that made him a very good swimmer. Um, and particularly, he has a long torso and relatively shorter legs that provide less drag in the water. But his coach felt that it was really important for Michael to not only be the most physically fit swimmer in the pool, but the most mentally fit swimmer in the pool. Because on race day, he would oftentimes kind of fall apart. He would let the stress get to him and he would choke. So one of the things that his coach, Bob Bowman, did is he developed a number of habits, routines for Phelps to follow every day. Michael Phelps always on a race day eats the same thing every morning. He wakes up at the same time. He goes through the same stretching routine in the exact same order. Everything is set to be exactly the same. And the reason why is that they wanted to make it feel like this is a day like any other day he's ever had. In addition, every night before Michael Phelps goes to sleep and every morning when he wakes up, he spends about 10 minutes visualizing the perfect race. And he tries to visualize the perfect race down to the smallest details. What it'll feel like to jump into the water. What it'll feel like when your arms swing over your head. When you get to the final lap, what you're going to be thinking about. When you get to the end of it, how you're going to take your, your goggle and your, your swim cap off. The reason why they work so hard to try and get every single detail kind of right and visualize it is that by the time Michael Phelps is actually competing in a real race, it'll almost feel anticlimactic. And in fact, after Michael Phelps um, set one of his world records though, at the China Olympics, the reporters asked him, how did that feel? What were you thinking about? And he said, it felt just like every other practice, right? This is someone who's so accustomed to this basic activity that even when he's in the water setting a world record, it feels very natural and relaxed because it's all become habit. The book is The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business by Charles Duhigg. Charles, if our listeners would like to get more information about you and your work, where can they go? Um, they can come to my website if they'd like, which is thepowerhabit.com, and all of my contact information is there. Charles, thank you for spending time with us today. I'm really happy that you were here to share this information, so thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We'll be right back.
How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Are you tired of prescription drugs and surgery as the only options available for your pain? I was too, but after working for over 20 years in the pharmaceutical industry, that was all I knew. My name is Janice Coviello. For years, I've been living with knee pain and discomfort every time I did something active, even walking. But after eight knee surgeries, countless bottles of Advil, and hyaluronic acid injections, I was desperate for relief. My doctors told me a knee replacement was my only option. To avoid another surgery, I found another solution, a transdermal gel known for reducing joint pain, faster recovery from injuries, enhancing strength, and promoting natural tissue repair. I started using the gel with amazing results. For the first time in 17 years, I could run without Advil. In addition, I sleep better and have so much more energy. But just don't take my word for it. Give it a try. Learn more about my journey and this amazing gel by visiting JaniceCoviello.com. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. Catherine Berndorf, co-founder and medical director of the Motherhood Center, a treatment center in New York City for pregnant and new moms experiencing anxiety and depression. She specializes in treating women before, during, and after pregnancy, as well as at other times of transition in their lives. Dr. Berndorf is an associate professor of psychiatry at Cornell. She was a regular mental health columnist for Self Magazine and has appeared on numerous television programs, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and CNN. She is a co-author of the new book, What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. She's here today to discuss... Mommy Brain. Welcome, Dr. Berndorf. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Catherine, I've heard the term mommy brain being used more and more. What does this mean? What is a mommy brain? For anyone who's ever had too much on their mind and felt scattered and overwhelmed and forgetful, that's kind of what it feels like. It's this idea that there's a fog and you feel slowed down and concentration is hard to find. So it's kind of like what I do on a daily basis, having my eyeglasses on my head and looking for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) This begins when we're pregnant, I'm assuming, and and with childbirth. Does it ever end? No, never. I think I always, you know, say once a mother, always a mother. And that's not derogatory. In fact, it's an amazing thing to be able to say something like that. But guess what? You've just added another lane to the highway in your head. So I'll sometimes use the analogy with patients or friends. I'll say, like, you know, if you're when you're on your own, you're on a single lane and then you have a partner and now you've got a two lane highway or or a divided road. And and then you bring on a kid that add on another lane. They're in your mind. And, And 
you just keep going from there. The idea is, is that you keep adding things to have to think about and remember and do and um, take care of. And they're always on your mind. They're always with you. Even if your kids, I had my kids say to me, you, you, you're not thinking about me. You, you're not considering my this or that. I'm like, you're always on my mind. You can't forget. You're really it's very hard to forget. And that takes up space and time and energy. And it doesn't make us dumb. It, in fact, expands the brain. We have to use more of our brain and grow parts of it that we may not have used before. So it's not that we're, we become less smart or we become cognitively impaired. I think we become potentially busier up there with more going on on our multi-lane highway that we're trying to keep track of at all times. So it's a particular state of being that is very um, kind of multitasking and busy. And when you add in all of the external forces like technology and social media and, you know, constant oh. cell phone use and television 24 hours, and you put that on top of the family responsibilities oh, yeah. and the children, it's very easy to understand overwhelm. Absolutely. It's like you're just surprised you can walk in a straight line. There's right. so many things you're you're thinking about at the same time. So it's not a comfortable state of being um, when we allow ourselves to become overwhelmed, which is an easy default place to live with a brain that's so full of things happening in there. Um, but what I always find as an antidote, right, that, that this is a, you know, when you let yourself go there, you realize how many things you are thinking about and that are going on up there in your brain. But like, I always think of it when I'm, when I'm seeing a patient and I'm sitting in the room and it's a singular experience and there's nothing else happening in the world except what's going on in that room between myself and the other person. I, I'm so focused. I'm so present in the moment. I'm in my flow. And it, it feels like the mommy brain part of my head that's otherwise almost always on, is pushed aside a little bit. It's still there. I mean, if school calls or if the kid's, you know, reaching out, they know how to find me. But for those moments that I'm singularly in the present, it, it's such a different experience. Like, to me, that's that's the opposite of the mommy brain, which is, you know, stuff going on all the time up there, right? Making you feel frazzled and, oh, my gosh, there's so much to do and so much to get done. It's it's And, and so, to me, the antidote, is not just that you have to become a psychiatrist and see patients and only be in your office. It's that how do you create experiences that, that allow you to have that singular focus? Like that when you're with someone, that you can be present and available with them. Or when you're doing something, that you can have your as much of your whole mind there in mm -hmm. that process. So how important is self-care in the process? Proper nutrition, getting sleep, how does that play in with alleviating mommy brain? Well, I think it's incredibly important, not just for mommy brain, but for everything mommy and everything person. You're, you know, that, that taking care of ourselves is not an act of selfishness. It's an act of self-preservation. And if we don't do it, who's going to do it? If we're not looking out for ourselves, who will be? And, and that's not to say, you know, me, 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 first, first, first. It is also true though, that when we have all these other responsibilities, that we must take care of ourselves first, though, because we can't do these other things and be a focused, efficient, you know, person at work or, um, you know, have, have mood in a relationship if we're not sleeping, right? Sleep is medicine. And if we're not sleeping enough, if we're not eating well enough because we're, you know, it's like grab and go as opposed to, you know, sitting down and being able to eat a healthy meal, whatever that is. Those things are so essential to this kind of to your foundation. And if you're not feeding yourself, literally and metaphorically, you're, you're at a disadvantage. So I think the confusion and fogginess that can come with the, the multitasking mommy brain is, is only made worse when you're not nourished sufficiently. And, you know, you and I were joking about it. And as women, we tend to joke about mommy brain and, and being forgetful. But as you're saying, we as women tend to put ourselves at the bottom of the chain. And it's just so important to make sure that our well is full so that we can take care of other people. 
Right. And as, as silly and, and off quoted as the, you know, airlines are with, you know, put your oxygen mask on before you put on, you know, the, the child next to you or the person that help the person next to you. It's actually true. Right. If, if, if you aren't OK, you're probably not OK to help somebody else either. The book is What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Berndorf and her work, you can visit themotherhoodcenter.com. And as always, to hear more from Dr. Berndorf, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Catherine. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us get rid of mommy brain. We've all had it. And these tips can go a long way in helping us cope and be a better caregiver to those we love. Thanks, Joan. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Hypnosis and hypnotherapy use guided relaxation, intense concentration, and focused attention to achieve a heightened state of awareness. Joining us today to talk about hypnotherapy and its benefits is Mary Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner and founder of Metro Hypnosis Center and A Path of Peace, located in Oradell, New Jersey. Mary is the author of Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, Clear Your Mind, and Step Into Your Power. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joan, for having me. So, Mary, I just mentioned two terms in the introduction, hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Is there a difference between the two? Joan, that's a great question. Hypnosis and hypnotherapy work together. Hypnosis is what the introduction to the hypnotherapy would be. So hypnosis is really relaxing you, saying positive thoughts into the mind, getting to that deep, relaxed state. Hypnotherapy is the deeper work where we're looking within to really clear the blocks. So Mary, when we hear about hypnotherapy, we think of the times that we may have seen someone being given a suggestion like barking like a dog or following other types of commands. And that scares people. They think they're going to lose control. I know that was the case the first time I was coming to you for a session. I was Googling it the night before because I had no idea what you were going to do to me the next day. So can you explain hypnosis to us and how it works? And Joan, you're not alone in that thought. Most people come to me a little unsure of what hypnosis really is going to be. And I like to explain hypnosis just like a daydream state. I like to break it down to something we all do every day. So when we're in a daydream state, we're focused on that thought, but we hear everything in the background. That's very similar to hypnosis. It's just a little deeper, but just like in a daydream state, you're aware, you hear everything that's going on, and you are in control. So you can't make us cluck like a chicken if we choose not to. Exactly right, Joan. You won't cluck like a chicken unless you want to. So if you took 20 people on stage, a few of them will do the antics, whatever it is, because they're okay with that. But most of us wouldn't. So we'll just sit quietly by the side or they'll just kind of push us off the stage because they're only going to focus on the people who are open to doing the antics they ask. So studies today are showing that hypnotherapy has many benefits. Can you share some of those benefits with us? Joan, I'm so excited to share the benefits of hypnosis and hypnotherapy. It is really unlimited in what you can do with this work. If you just want to get into positive mindset, which is very important to change, that could be just phase one of it. But if you have traumas or you have fears or phobias that you need to release to move forward, then this work is just wonderful to do that. It's so beneficial with grief, with anger, with sadness, with anxiety, with stress, sports hypnosis, medical hypnosis. That's why I call hypnosis unlimited. And Mary, is it safe? Joan, it's very safe. The only thing I would just recommend for people is to make sure uh, the person you're working with has tra the training, the proper training, but it is very safe and effective work. And there's no side effects of like the drugs would give you. So it's all natural and it's really about clearing the mind. What type of person would be a good candidate for hypnotherapy? You always tell me that I'm able to go in very easily. So is there something about me that makes me a good candidate? Most people can go into hypnosis and 
most people have experienced it on some level, whether it's a daydream or if you're driving somewhere and you get somewhere and you don't realize how you got there. You're in a hypnotic state. So most people can do it. Sometimes it's the openness or the fear if you don't want to lose control or something like that. But I always um, meet with people beforehand and chat, talk to them and make sure they're educated on what it is. So then when they do the work, they are confident and comfortable with the process. That's really what it is, is educating people on the process, making sure they're comfortable with it, and then they can relax and, and go into that relaxed state. So part of your goal is to empower people to be able to do self-hypnosis. What is self-hypnosis? And would someone like me or, or anyone who's doing this, would we be able to get the same benefits that we would by working with a professional like you? Joan, self-hypnosis is just a relaxed state. I call it a shortcut to get into the meditative state. So all we're doing with self-hypnosis is really teaching you how to clear the mind. And when you clear the mind, then you can go into that relaxed state because that's what hypnosis is all about. There are many benefits to doing the self-hypnosis, and you can certainly do that on your own. But you would need, if you want the deeper work that hypnotherapy can give, then you need the professional. But everyone can learn to be calm, to clear that mind, and get into that peaceful state, which will benefit everyone. Can you teach us something now that we would be able to do on our own? I think the breath is the biggest thing to show people. It's the beginning of a lot of my inductions for people in hypnosis. But the breath, we, we all know about breathing because we're breathing all day. But what we're doing is taking short breaths, and it's not relaxing us. But I think of a breath like a pause. So I always use the breath when I'm dealing with weight loss, smoking, or any other issue where we need to take that pause in life. So if you all just would sit on a chair, have your um, get comfortable in the chair, and all you have to do is take a nice deep breath in, and you want to let your belly really come out with the breath. So you just would breathe in through the nose, so we can just do that now. And you want to let that belly out. And now you want to breathe out through the mouth. And you can practice this. You can do this four or five times, six times. You could do it once. It's a great thing. Let's say you're going to have a public presentation today and you're a little nervous. You can be in the conference room. You can be waiting to be called and just take that breath. So it's usable in any Thing that you do that you need a little more calm and peace for the day. So Mary, you're the author of the new book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, Clear Your Mind, and Step Into Your Power. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Joan, I call my book a beautiful book. It's written with love, compassion, comfort, and peace. My book, of course, teaches people how to do self-hypnosis and educates them on hypnosis. But What's special about my book is that each chapter is written in a letter format, so it allows me to be personal to you, my dearest one who is the reader, who's, who's actually reading the book. So I share my story of how I had loss and how hypnosis helped me heal, because there's such healing in hypnosis if you allow it to happen, if you're open and ready for it. And that's what my book shows by my story and how I truly transformed. I changed my life 360 degrees and hypnosis was part of that because a big part of this is creating the positive thoughts, creating that positive mindset. And I didn't realize how negative I was before. I changed my life with clearing the mind, creating positive thoughts, and then moving forward. A lot of people are stuck and this book shows you how you can move forward on your journey in life. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about Mary and her work, or if you'd like to get a copy of her new book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, you can visit her websites, metrohypnosiscenter.com or apathofpeace.com. Mary, in our final moments, what would you like to leave our listeners with? I'd like to leave the listeners with the thought of hypnosis, that it brings such calm, relaxation, and peace into your life and to be open for the unlimited possibilities because that's what you tap into when you tap into hypnosis and your own self. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. On a personal note, you have helped me on my journey. You've helped me manage grief. You've helped me to move through a lot of different situations that I've encountered in life. And 
you know, at first, as I said, I was skeptical about hypnotherapy. I didn't know a lot about it, but, you know, I did my research. I've worked with you and it really has had a profound impact on my life and on my healing. So again, if you'd like to get more information about Mary, please visit MetroHypnosisCenter.com or APathOfPeace.com. Mary, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you having a rough time grasping why you need to be on social media or maybe just overwhelmed with the thought of being on it at all? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures with a social media simplified tip. Just be you. Businesses get hung up on the what and why of posting on different platforms because it just takes too much time. Social media is really just a conversation. It's essential for businesses today to be posting on social media, but it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Customers and potential customers want to know about your business. What do you have to offer? Who are you? Your best bet on social media is to just be you. Show a photo from your place of business. What type of services you offer? Write a few sentences or maybe even a few more. So remember, when social media seems to be overwhelming, you do you better than anyone else. For more information, visit our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Social media simplified with Sue. Are you in sound health or is your body sounding the alarm? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati, owner of Awaken Sound Health. Every one of us has spent time looking at the stars and imagining the vastness of the universe, feeling both inconsequential and yet somehow connected to it all. The word universe is from the Latin words uni, which means one, and versus, which means turned, and it means turned into one. When you gaze at the twinkling stars, it's easy to see the vibrational quality of the light. Everything in the universe is in a constant state of vibration, which means everything is always producing sound. The universe is a symphony of sounds turned into one beautiful song that you are a part of. You may not consciously think of your life in the context of a song, but you intuitively know that life is intrinsically connected to sound. Even our language highlights that sound is an aspect of everything, and we often use the word sound to describe the quality of something. If you awaken from a deep sleep, you say, I was sound asleep. If you invest your money wisely, you say it is a sound investment. And if you are in good health, you declare, I am in sound health. When you are in sound health, the various components of your body are harmoniously vibrating with each other. But when you are ill at ease or diseased, some part of you is out of tune with the whole. Are you in sound health? At Awaken Sound Health, we weave therapeutic sounds into healing music to harmonize your body, mind, and spirit. Sound healing is not a replacement for medical intervention. Learn more and book an appointment at awakensoundhealth.com. How can those covered by a health insurance plan protect themselves from unexpected out-of-pocket costs? Two ways immediately come to mind. Hi, I'm Ed Gaelic, a life and health insurance broker and founder of PSI Consultants located in Glenrock, New Jersey. We have specialized in personal insurance and company-sponsored health benefits since 1985. One, prior authorization, also known as pre-certification, is the approval an insurance carrier gives a member and provider for certain services before they are performed. Without prior authorization, benefits could be reduced or even denied. Generally speaking, non-emergency hospital-related services, behavioral health, Substance abuse, advanced radiology services, and some prescriptions require prior authorization. Members should refer to their benefit booklet or call member services for verification before services are performed. It is up to the member to ensure that pre-authorizations are obtained because the member would suffer any financial consequences. In most cases, a service or medication on the carrier's prior authorization list will be approved. If it is not, the member can appeal. A member can certainly choose to receive the service or obtain the medication if prior authorization is not approved. However, the total cost could become the member's responsibility. Two, usual customary reasonable, UCR, is the maximum amount an insurance company will consider eligible for reimbursement under a health insurance plan and only applies when using non-network providers. It is always advisable to question whether your out-of-network providers will accept UCR. If they will not, you will have these options. Pay the balance above UCR. 
Ask the provider to forgive the balance above UCR. Negotiate with provider to reduce the balance. If they won't, get additional information from the provider why they are above UCR and submit to the insurance carrier under an appeal for reconsideration. By addressing UCR before treatment, you could avoid unexpected expenses and headaches by having to appeal the balance billing. It is always more difficult to argue the point after a claim is processed. To contact us and learn more, please visit our website, psi-consultants.com. When you try to get into your dream college, against whom are you really competing? And what can you do about it? Hey, I'm Scott Doty from Brainstorm Tutoring. I'm a professional academic mentor and performance coach. This is the time of year if you have a child who's a rising senior or have a friend who has a student of that age, this is the magic moment. It's time to get together your school list and give yourselves the best shot at getting into great school matches for your son or daughter. But how do you find those matches? Who are you really competing against? You might see on paper that a school has a general acceptance rate, but what you really want to consider is who else from your town and from your high school, from your region of the country is applying to that school. Those are the people against whom you are really competing. If you're from northern New Jersey or New York City, you're competing against other kids from that area for spots at that school. You're not really competing against kids from Puerto Rico or Colombia or Spain or even Utah. You're competing against kids in your zip code. And what can you do about that? What you want to do is you want to find creative options of places to apply that are less obvious. If everyone in town is applying to Fordham, find a school that's like Fordham, but somewhere else. Maybe look into Butler or Santa Clara. If you love UPenn, but everyone else applying there, check out Rice in Texas. If you love URI, how about Towson in Maryland? Or if you like Sacred Heart, how about Endicott or Merrimack in Massachusetts? There's always another option that's less obvious so that you maximize your chances of admission. If you want to check out more from me and my company, please check out stormthetest.com. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations around motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss instilling an attitude of gratitude. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joan. So, Amy, instilling an attitude of gratitude, I agree with you. That is something that we should be practicing on a daily basis. How do you Mm -hmm. recommend we become more aware of whether or not we're grateful? What I recommend that we do is, you hear me say this a lot, Joan, is to take a step back. And we really need to look at ourselves and listen to ourselves. What are we focused on Are we focused on what we have or are we focused on what we constantly want? And what are we saying, right? So we need to listen to what we're saying because let me tell you, our children are listening to every word we say and they pick up on our focuses. And, you know, um, I know I did an interview with you quite some time ago about the difference between needs and wants. So, you know, we need to focus. Are we Are we focusing on what we have or what we constantly want? So, Amy, when we become more grateful in our own life, do you think then that that's a good way to instill gratitude within our families? It's definitely a start. I think that, you know, again, like I just said, as role models, our kids pick up on our behavior and our actions. But I do think that we need to go one step further. And, um, like, for example, I when my girls were little, every night before bed, as I tucked them in, I would ask them to tell me three things that they were thankful for. And they were so cute. And I would let them say whatever they were thankful for. They would say their cozy bed, their blankie. My one daughter one night was so thankful for her 10 toes. She was like giddy about her 10 toes. It was, mm-hmm. it was precious. But, you know, it's interesting because Sean Anker um, points out that when we ask teens, I just read this recently, Joan, to focus on three things they're grateful for each day. The idea of or the teen suicide ideology rate drops something like 70 percent, which is huge. So it's not just something to do with little children. Now that I have teenagers, I don't necessarily always do it at bedtime, but I do sporadically throughout the day say, hey, what's something that you're thankful for that happened today? 
or, you know, I'm really thankful that you're my daughter. And, you know, and then I just express it naturally, too. But it, it has to always be genuine. But mm-hmm. once you begin to do it, you'll find that you naturally start to focus on what you're grateful for. So it, it really becomes second nature. Are you able to see your daughters being more grateful? Is this practice helping them in their lives? I do see it helping them. You know, I've always been someone who's had them write thank you notes and um, not just for something like the Christmas gift, but I always have extended it to say, hey, thank them for spending time with us or thank them for caring about you. So I think it's important, especially in our day and age of such intense consumerism, that we point out what we're thankful that's beyond the things and the stuff. And um, yeah, I think as my daughters are growing up, you know, I pray every day and I, I hope every day some days are better than others. And and uh, just like with everybody, we're up and down and all over the place sometimes. But I do think that there's a steady sense of gratefulness. And um, it's a, it's a self-reinforcing practice, really, Joan, because the more you're focused on, you know, creating a culture with your, within your family of gratitude, um, the more you notice what you're thankful for. So it becomes like this really fun, joyful, circular kind of energy. And um, once you get caught up in it, it's amazing to witness. And that's what we want to promote and bring out into the world. Amy, thank you so much for this reminder. If you would like to get more information about Amy and her work, you can visit her website, createclarity.net. And as always, to hear more from Amy, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.